I'm well aware that it is politically correct to say that all religions are basically the same. Whilst it may be politically correct, it is theologically incorrect. And I tend to stick with the theological as much as possible, as much as I understand it. And the reason that I say this is not that I want to be contentious about other religions, because that is not my intention. The reason I mention it to you is that I believe there is one area in which Christianity is uniquely, distinctively different, and we need to be aware of it. I think you probably would agree with me that the majority of the world religions are fundamentally about mankind or humanity's search for the other, for the transcendent, for God, or for something similar, depending on what people are thinking and what their religion is teaching. In other words, it is a down here, up there sort of approach. Christianity, however, we are told, works in the reverse manner. The Christianity is about God seeking human beings. There is a unique and enormous distinction that sets Christianity apart from other major religions. Now, the, the Bible says, in probably the best known in the, verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his son. This is all about God taking an initiative and reaching out to a world. And the son that he gave, Jesus Christ, himself said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. So I think it is not too difficult to establish that one of the dimensions of the God of Christianity is that he is a seeking God. If that is true, then the question that automatically comes to my mind is then, well, what is he looking for? What, what, what is God looking for? And if that is true, and I've got some answers there, then the corollary question to me would be, did he find whatever he's looking for in me? And those are two questions I'd like to explore with you. What is it he's looking for? And if we can establish what it is he's looking for, then we can ask the personal question, did he find what he's looking for in me? I want to direct your attention to John's Gospel, chapter 4, in which we have an account that most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, of, of Jesus meeting with a certain woman by the side of a well in a town called Sychar in Samaria. During the course of the conversation that Jesus had with this woman, the subject turned to religion and then specifically to styles of worship. This woman, being a Samaritan, uh, talked about Samaritan worship and compared it to Jewish worship because as she looked at Jesus, she, it was obvious that, humanly speaking, he was a Jew. And, uh, of course, as usually happens in those kind of discussions, it was, she tried to compare the two. And Jesus' response is very interesting. Verse 23 of John 4 says this, Jesus said, A time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship 
in spirit and in truth. Now therein is certainly part of the answer of the question, what is God looking for? God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is what the seeking God is seeking. Now, what, 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 is, what does that mean? C.S. Lewis, the great Northern Ireland uh, Christian apologist, was not always a Christian apologist. He had a fascinating Christian, uh, well, a, a fascinating spiritual pilgrimage. At one stage, he was an outspoken atheist. And then he became an agnostic, and then he became a deist, and then he became a theist, and then he became a Christian. And then uh, when he became a Christian, he said he was an extremely reluctant Christian and wasn't very happy about being a Christian, but he was a Christian nevertheless. And then, uh, of course, eventually he carefully studied the whole thing, used his considerable mind, God worked in his life, and he became a powerful apologist for Christianity. An apologist, incidentally, is not somebody who apologizes for Christianity. It's somebody who gives a rational explanation of the Christian faith and arguments for it and for its veracity. At one stage in his pilgrimage, however, C.S. Lewis had arrived at the point where he said he believed in God, he just didn't like him very much. Now, I think that probably makes you a little nervous when you hear that, but if we're honest, probably all of us have gone through a stage like that at one time or another. We believe in him, but we don't like very much what he hasn't done or what he is doing, or we've got some questions and we're a little bit uneasy. As far as C.S. Lewis was concerned, what he didn't like about God was this whole business of him wanting people to worship him. And as far as C.S. Lewis was concerned, it sounded to him as if, and here I quote Lewis, I hasten to add, this is not what I say, Lewis said, ask, hearing that God is asking people to worship him sounds as if God is like a vain woman who needs compliments all the time, who needs to be told how wonderful she is and how beautiful she is and how gorgeous she is in order to keep going. And he said, it's almost as if God is lacking something and is sitting up there in heaven saying, come on, come on, tell me how wonderful I am. Come on, worship me. Well, as he thought about that, he thought something didn't seem quite right about that. And so he concluded that God was not looking for worshipers for his own benefit, which left only one possibility. And that was that God was looking for worshipers for the great benefit that would accrue to the worshiper. Now, as soon as he came to that conclusion, that opened up whole new avenues of thought. I think this idea that there is enormous benefit in worship is a totally foreign concept to many, many people. As far as they're concerned, worship is a fundamental irrelevance at best, at worst, an excruciating bore, and that they stay away from any kind of worship in droves. So it looks to me as if we need to look very carefully into this idea that there, there is possibly some benefit that accrues to human beings in the act of worship. Well, let me, let me tell you what it is, and then I'll try to substantiate it for you. I believe that human beings are uniquely created 
and that the major aspect of their uniqueness is that they are created capable of worship. If the uniqueness of a human being is seen in their capacity for worship, then clearly to fail to worship means that human beings are operating at less than optimum. If a human being is operating at less than optimum, it will be of enormous benefit for them to factor in that which is lacking. That would basically be my understanding of this. Now, let me see if I can substantiate this for you. In what way are human beings created uniquely capable of worship? The Bible starts out without apology, without introduction, without preamble, (laughs) just goes straight in and dives off the deep end. And what does it say right at the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No preamble, no argument, no introduction, no discussion. That's it. That is where we start in what we call the divine revelation. Now then, that lets us into a clue. And the clue is that God is in the business of revealing himself. There was no compelling reason that God should have made anything. He was complete and entire in himself from all eternity. But in order to express who he is with an enormous desire to express who he is, he created. And the Bible says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Now included in this created order, of course, are human beings. And the statement of scripture is this, that as we look at the created order, it is possible for us to see something of the reality of the creator because the creator is in the business of self-revelation. That's where we start. The creator created because he's in the business of self-revelation and in the created order, it is possible to see something of the creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, human beings being part of that created order hold a unique place in the created order. We are certainly part of it. When we talk about that which is created, we usually talk about animal, vegetable, and mineral. That's about, that's about accounts for what we have around this created order, animal, vegetable, and mineral. And of course, there are human beings. You say, well, why don't you say there are four things, animal, vegetable, mineral, and human beings? Because in actual fact, human beings are made up of animal, vegetable, and mineral. I don't want to insult anybody. Let me talk about me. I am basically animal, vegetable, and mineral. My body is made up of common minerals that you'll find lying around the place. And if you get them in the right order, scrape enough together, you could make one of me. Nobody would want to, but you could do it. The Bible says rather graphically, and I had to say this over over the casket of a dear friend, ash to ashes, dust to dust. That's what we say at a funeral. 
because we know that our bodies are made of the fundamental minerals and they will decompose and return to the minerals. So I am mineral. I'm more than mineral, but I'm mineral. Not only that, I am vegetable. I know that because my mother said, eat your vegetables. They'll do you good. And I knew that they must be doing me good because they tasted awful. Brussels sprouts. Why would God invent Brussels sprouts? Well, he did to do me good, you see? And I ate them and look at me. Now, all right? So she was right. Obviously, she was right. The amazing thing was this. I would hold my nose and close my eyes and put a Brussels sprout in the hole under my nose. It would go into my body and it would morph into blood and fiber and muscle and skin. And it was incredible. And I discovered I'm not only mineral, I'm vegetable. Not only that, I have discovered I am animal. Now, some people have no problem agreeing with that at all. They say, he is an animal. In fact, if we really want to insult each other, that's what we say. We say, you eat like a pig. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't say that, but that is the sort of thing we think sometimes. You have the morals of an alley cat, you see. This is not the way to talk. But there's no question about it. If you're going to have surgery, you're probably scared, but don't be, because the person who practices medicine, and I appreciate the fact they admit they're practicing, those who practice medicine practice on a pig first. And the reason they practice on a pig first is there's a remarkable affinity between your body and theirs. In fact, if some of your parts wear out, they may take a part from a pig and fit it in, and you'll be even better than you were before. I am animal, vegetable, and mineral. Is that all I am? No, because I'd be insulted if you called me an animal. I'd be insulted if you said I was in a vegetative state, because I'm not. And I would be insulted if you said that I was worth nothing more than the dust on the street. Well, what's so special about being a human being then if we're just part of the created order? What's so special about us? And the answer is this. Because we are animal, vegetable, or mineral, we are physical, which means we can relate to the physical environment, but we are social because we have the remarkable ability to relate to each other. We can know each other. We can like each other. We can love each other. We can dislike each other. We can hate each other. We can learn from each other. We can insult each other. We can react to each other. We are far more than the pigs. We are far more than the dust, and we are certainly infinitely more than Brussels sprouts. For we are not only physical, we are social. But is that all we are? Because dogs are social. Whenever you see a little dog, check its north end. Check its north end to see if it is growling. Check its south end to see if it's wagging. And you will very soon find that it is a social thing. Cats are another issue, but dogs are social. (laughs) But I am more than social and I am more than physical because I am spiritual, which means this. Because I am physical, I can relate to the physical universe. Because I am social, I can relate to the sensate universe. And because I am spiritual, listen, listen, I can relate to the transcendent. I can relate to the eternal. I can relate to the divine. 
and relating to the transcendent and relating to the eternal and relating to the divine is worship. And the thing that sets me apart from the rest of the created order that God did intentionally bring into being, the thing that sets me apart in the rest of the created order is that I can relate to the spiritual, the transcendent, the eternal, the divine. And it stands to reason that if I'm not doing it, I am not operating up to optimum. And God's self-revelation is where we start. He does it in creation. The problem very often is that he reveals these beautiful things to us in creation, and we don't have eyes to see them. For many years, for dozens of years, I guess, I ran. Ever since I came out of the Marines, I wanted to stay in reasonable shape, so I ran and I ran and I ran, and then I got into an old man. And I was running one day, and I was hot, and I was sticky, and I was tired, and I was old. And I saw myself in a store window, and I thought, I can't tell if I'm running or stumbling. (laughs) And so I decided before someone rushed out to my aid, I would ask myself a question, a very simple question. Why am I still doing this? I had no idea of the answer, so I walked home and haven't run since. Now I walk. <clears throat> and the difference was incredible. The difference was incredible. You see, before, this was life. <laughs> this was life. <gasps> Even when I came to traffic lights and the traffic was going past, guess what? <sighs> you see? And I had no time to see anything. And then I stopped running and started walking. And I realized I lived with blinkers on. And that's a metaphor for many people's lives. God is transmitting the truth about himself. This room is full of transmissions of cell phones. There are not only cell phone signals, there are radio signals, there are television signals. God is transmitting in creation the truth about himself. But if you're not switched on, you're not operating at optimum. Not only does God reveal himself in creation, he reveals himself in covenant. The Old Testament takes us a step further in God's self-revelation. Creation will tell us that he is powerful, that he is immense, that he is orderly, that he is majestic, all kinds of things it will tell us, but it won't tell us that he is personal, it won't tell us his character, and it won't tell us he's relational. But God then took a further step in self-revelation and moved to make a particular covenant arrangement with a particular group of people through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Psalm 19, we already quoted, the heavens declare the glory of God, starts out with God's self-revelation in creation. The next part of it talks about the covenant that he had made. 
It talks about his instructions. It talks about his commandments. It talks about his orders. It talks about his statutes. In other words, this was God speaking to the children of Israel and he's saying, this is what I am like. This is what I am for. This is what I am against. This is what I require of you. This is what I promise you. This is what I warn you about. And we begin to see the explosion of revelation, transmission of signals coming from a self-revelatory God now. Now he is not just revealing himself in creation. He's revealing himself in covenant. But there are still holes in our understanding of God that he wants to fill. And so there's a third means of self-revelation for he reveals himself in Christ. He reveals himself in Christ. He turns to the son one day and he says, son, I want you to go down into that world. And first of all, I want you to show them who I really am. And the son came down and one day said to his questioning disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And those words were echoed by the writer to the letter to the Hebrews when he said that Jesus was the express image of the invisible God. People sometimes say, well, I don't know what God's like. I said, let let me introduce you to Jesus. You say, how are you going to do that? I said, I know an excellent book on the subject, the New Testament. Read the Gospels. Immerse yourself in the Gospels and get a vision of Jesus. And if you see him, you've seen the Father. And that is why a person who is alert to the fact that God is in the self-revelation business is an assiduous student of nature who loves the Old Testament who is an avid student of the New Testament because he or she wants to receive the transmission that is going on all the time from a self-revelatory God. The interesting thing, of course, about transmissions is that you need something that is capable of receiving the transmission. There's an invisible signal going on. It's going out. Self-revelatory God in creation and in covenant and in Christ. But if you're not switched on, you'll miss the message. But if you are switched on, you can receive what he is transmitting. Now, when you receive what he is transmitting... There's always the possibility that you won't quite understand what you're receiving. You read the Old Testament, you say, oh boy, I can't understand this. You read the New Testament, oh boy, I can't understand this. I've looked at the birds and the bees and I can't see God anywhere. I don't know what to do. A number of years ago, Jill Jill and I were ministering down in Costa Rica and at the end of our time of ministry there, we, we took a couple of days off, which we do occasionally at the end of a trip, And uh, we went to look for birds in a a very well-known ornithological region. And uh, we went with a guide uh, one morning for three hours down the jungle trails looking for birds. And at the end of three hours down the jungle trails, we saw a total of three birds. 
And so I talked to the guide about this. And I said, we were told that this was a, a first-class place uh, for seeing birds. And he said, it is. And I'm an ornithologist. I said, we throw, saw three birds in three hours this morning. And he said, yeah. He said, unfortunately for you, the people that you were with in the group had said, we're not interested in birds, just finders, insects, and, and reptiles. I said, well, we saw every creepy crawly on the face of God's green earth, and we saw a lot of slithery snakes, but we wanted to see birds. He said, come tomorrow morning, and I'll take just the two of you with me. We went at the same time with the same guide down the same trails for the same amount of time the next morning and saw 50 varieties of gorgeous tropical birds. How would you come for the difference? Well, the difference was this. Our guide took us, and as we walked along, he'd say, listen, listen. And we would listen and we'd hear the sound of a bird song. And he would say, now that is a certain bird, and it nests high and lives high in the high canopy. So don't look around here. Look in the high canopy. And he said, you hear that one there? Now that is a ground feeder. That will be down on the ground. And then he said, and that one? Did you hear that one? That is a fruit eater. And it specializes in almonds. And that's an almond tree. You'll see it in that almond tree over there. And then you know what he did? He mimicked the sound of the birds. He knew exactly where to look and he showed us exactly where to look. He mimicked the sound of the birds and the little birds came out and bowed. (laughs) And we looked at them and we had no idea what we were looking at. Fortunately, we had a guide. Now here's the point. God is in the business of transmission. You have a spirit that is capable of receiving the transmission. But it's just possible you won't know what you're receiving. It's just possible you don't know what you're reading. It's just possible you don't know what you're seeing. That is why God has promised that his spirit will commune with your spirit and lead you into an understanding. Listen to what he says. Meditate upon these things and the Lord will give you understanding. You see... We live in an instant world. We want it all cut and dried for us. We want it quick, and we want it easy, and we want it painless. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. You will receive my transmission, and you'll begin to appropriate it when you begin to take the time out to listen intently, to pray deeply, to meditate constantly, and then I will give you human teachers who along with the Holy Spirit can take the eternal word and you get the living word and the Holy Spirit and a gifted, called human teacher and you take in what is being revealed and you meditate upon it and I promise you something, you will appropriate what you're receiving that I'm transmitting. But then he goes a step further. This is what Psalm 95 says. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us sing for joy unto the Lord. Let us shout unto the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow down and worship. Come before him 
with thanksgiving. Now we're going a step further. Transmission, reception, appropriation, appreciation. Appreciation. My heart now is being strangely warmed by what I'm learning of God from creation and covenant and Christ. I am beginning to discover a desire to know more. I am beginning to discover a hunger for truth. I am beginning to get my sights lifted into the realm of the transcendent and the eternal. I am no longer purely physical and social. I'm becoming spiritual. And I am looking for ways to express what is bubbling up inside me. Appreciation of the appropriation, of the reception, of the transmission. Do you know what all this is called? Worship. Worship. Now the exhortation of Psalm 95 is very straightforward. It is to the people to gather together, to gather together and to sing for joy to the Lord. What are they doing? They are articulating the appreciation of the reception of the transmission, and they're doing it together. There is a place for corporate worship. There is a place where people come together, and in coming together, they sing for joy to the Lord. Now, I think the most controversial area of church life in the world today, all over the world, is the area of worship. And it's usually the area of music and different styles of music. And it's tragic. It's utterly tragic. People are choosing churches on the basis of the music. They're leaving churches on the basis of the music. The music is intended to be introducing people to the fullness of their humanity. When intelligently responding to the reception of the transmission and appropriation of self-revelation... They are intelligently, joyfully articulating in a medium that God has created called music, the praise of God. And they're doing it together. And as far as I'm concerned, what matters is that it be based on truth, that it comes from the heart, and it's addressed to the Lord. And then I don't care what style of music it is as long as the style is compatible with based on truth coming from the heart addressed to the Lord. I was in a church preaching in Guatemala City in Central America. It was a Pentecostal church. Now then, you ask, how can an old Brit like you finish up in a Latino Pentecostal church? And the answer is a mystery. Actually, I was invited to go, and I'll go anywhere. Just as long as you don't tell me what to say, I'll go anywhere. And it was wonderful. They had the requisite three guitars, synthesizer, and drums. They had them cranked up to ear-splitting volume. We were in a building that can only adequately be described as a bare concrete box. It was deafening. It was Utterly, definitely. When it actually stopped, mercifully, it stopped. (laughs) My ears continued to ring through the whole of my sermon. It was excruciating. 
But I'll tell you something. The amazing thing about it was above all this racket, you could hear the people singing above it. And you could hear the people shouting above it. And this was their expression of worship. And I come back and we sing a song. And a lot of us stand there. as if we just lost our best friend and we can't handle it. What's wrong? What's wrong? You see, the appreciation requires articulation. And if there isn't articulation of the appreciation of the appropriation of the reception of the transmission, there's no worship. And if there's no worship, then we're not operating at optimum for it is the capacity to receive the transmission and appropriate it and appreciate it and articulate it that is the very essence of our unique humanity. Of course, it's not just a matter of singing in worship. The next thing it says in Psalm 95 is, come and let us bow down and worship. Now, that's interesting. When you read about worship in the Old Testament, it's nearly always coupled with bow down. When you read about worship in the New Testament, it could be a translation of any one of six Greek words. The most common one is proskuneo, and proskuneo means to kiss towards, which doesn't make a lot of sense until you get a picture in your mind. You get a picture of a high platform on which is a throne, on which is seated a king. A supplicant comes before the king. He doesn't bound up the steps, jump on the platform, slap the king on the back and say, hey, belly, how is it all going? No, he comes humbly to the bottom step. He kneels on the bottom step. He reaches forward and he takes the hand of the king and he kisses it. Kiss towards, pros kuneo, the word for worship. And that is the posture of submission. And the articulation of the appreciation of the appropriation of the reception of the transmission is seen not only in the way we sing and shout to the Lord, but it is shown in the way that we submit to him in acknowledgement of who he is, as we have discovered through his self-revelation. Psalm 95 takes a dramatic switch around about verse 7. This has led scholars for years to say, well, it's obviously two entirely different psalms that got mixed up somehow or other. Recent scholarship is saying, no. What was happening was this. The first six verses were calling the people to celebration and they were celebrating when suddenly in the midst of all the celebration, a prophetic voice comes booming out. Harden not your hearts as you did in the day of provocation. And then there is a statement concerning what happened to the children of Israel when God revealed himself to them and they celebrated on the outside and their hearts were unsubmissive on the inside. And the lesson is this. Worship isn't just about singing and shouting. 
Worship is about singing and shouting and submitting to his lordship. I mentioned that about half a dozen words for worship in the New Testament. The most common is proskuneo. Most of the others can be translated either worship or service. The word means both because you cannot separate worship from service. So what is a worshiper? A worshiper is somebody who has received the transmission of God's self-revelation, has appropriated it to himself or herself, has begun to discover deep in their heart a wonderful appreciation of what they're discovering of God. They're looking for a way to articulate that appreciation and to make application of that appropriation. And you put all that together, application, articulation, appreciation and appropriation of revelation and there's one word for it it's worship now pigs can't do it brussels sprouts can't do it and neither can the dust in the gutter do it but your animal vegetable and mineral your physical You're social as well, but you're spiritual. But if you're not functioning in worship, you're not operating at optimum. And if you're not operating at optimum, God doesn't want that. He's looking for worshipers, not for his benefit, but for yours. So the question is this. If he's looking for worshippers, did he find one in me?